Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. It's not just about their literacy development, it's about their lives. If that doesn't allow us to remain steadfast, I don't know what will. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. I just want to acknowledge to those listeners who watch for our Friday releases that we missed an episode last week. My mother died rather unexpectedly on the day we were scheduled to record last week's episode, and it's taken me a little bit to get back on track. We were planning a conversation with a principal preparing to reopen her school building in March, and I'm hoping to reschedule. But in this episode, we're doing something a little different. the organization that represents state education commissioners issued a call for the nation to improve reading instruction. This is very unusual for that organization. In subsequent episodes, we will talk with folks who can talk more about that call and what states and districts can do to improve reading instruction. But today we wanted to set the stage for why the Council of Chief State School Officers took this unusual step. I'm really excited that Dr. Alfred Tatum has joined us to talk about this. Dr. Tatum is well known to reading researchers and educators throughout the country. When he was a young man considering what field to go into, he read an article about the failure of many African-American boys to learn to read. That propelled him to become an eighth grade teacher. He subsequently became one of the leading researchers on African-American male literacy and has published more than 70 papers and several books, including Reading for Their Life, Rebuilding the Textual Lineages of African-American Adolescent Males. But despite his research work, he has never stopped being a practitioner, trying to both improve the reading ability of individual children, as well as the instruction provided to children more generally. Dr. Tatum was recently named Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs at Metropolitan State University of Denver in Colorado. But for seven years, he was Dean of the College of Education at the University of Illinois, Chicago. We've actually caught him between jobs. Welcome, Dr. Tatum. I'm very grateful you took the time to talk with us. Um, let's, let's start with an easy question. How would you describe the state of reading in this country right now? Well, thanks for inviting me for this. Uh, what I think is a very important conversation. Um, we do not know definitively where we are uh, with the state of reading in the United States. If I think about uh, roughly the 54 million students across 17,000 school districts, um, what I find out is that we are really in search of ourselves. There's a lot of theorizing, legitimizing literacies, conceptualizing, and what's happening is a great deal of improvisation 
as school districts are trying to uh, get it right. So if I think about the different contexts, whether it's in school or out of school or locations, urban, suburban, rural, or school types, public, uh, private, uh, parochial, uh, we have a very scattered shot of what's actually uh, taking place. But we do have some information that serves as a guiding light. Uh, there is a growing, uh, robust uh, research architecture, but at this point, it's insignificant. Uh, for example, uh, I recently looked at the state of reading research with uh, African-American boys, uh, roughly 4 million boys, and the research only captures roughly 0.0005% of these boys. So if I think about taking the research and looking at Latinas or Native American uh, girls or students in special education, the architecture is very, very, very uh, thin. And as a result of that, uh, we're making decisions about reading instruction based on limited knowledge of how we apply that research across uh, different uh, contexts, locations, and school types. But the thing that most concerns me when I think about the state of reading in the U.S., I think there is an aggression of basic and proficient reading. And what I mean by that, we have been so oriented to focus on basic and proficient reading that has um, a negative effect on how we advance literacy instruction uh, in this nation uh, because we give power and we authorize literacy instruction over kids. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the state of reading instruction that really concerns me, uh, I'll talk about struggling readers uh, for a moment. Um, there was a movement in the U.S. some years ago to think about leveling reader reading for certain students. We went to double periods of reading instruction in middle schools and elementary schools, and we squeezed out information across the disciplines. So this is a word play, but I think it's very important to understand. For struggling readers, we began to say that they um, undeserve certain types of texts. So they won't have the sciences or social studies and our kids, many of our kids went from undeserved to underserved. And that uh, deeply uh, uh, concerns me um, moving forward. So I'll let that serve as an introductory comment. Um, so here I'm going to play the devil's advocate just for a minute, because we know that there are a lot of kids who can't really even get the words off the page. I think a lot of educators think of this as a linear process, right? So you, if, you can't, if you can't read the word cat, I'm not going to introduce you to the word feline. It wouldn't be appropriate, right? Um, and what it sounds to me like you're saying is that's not the right way to go. There are certain things that are, are, are foundational. Uh, if we want kids to move toward level of independence, where I don't have to rely on someone to dictate or determine what I read, what I expose myself to, what I experience. Um, the problem is, in my estimation, is um, 
we can think about the foundational aspects of reading without postponing intellectual development. And so how do we think about a broader menu uh, of approaches? Um, to be more concrete, that would suggest that we do not engage students in rich read-alouds or share gorgeous vocabulary with them, or even have them engage in discussions from a developmentally appropriate perspective. And so you begin to squeeze out the other identities that students bring in. Reading is one identity and the academic identity. If we want to shore up the academic identity, we must make sure that students have the requisite skills and the strategies. But if we think about the role of reading uh, writ large, uh, it needs to have affordances for other identities to come in uh, to play. So in short, foundational, yes, but it should not suppress or depress other aspects that could serve as some form of capital as students move toward a level of independent reading and independent writing. What was your reaction when you saw the latest NAEP scores? So you've been, you have served on the National Assessment of uh, Governing Board. You understand what the nation's report card says and what it doesn't say. And I think a lot of people were really disappointed that the results were pretty much flat um, and sometimes sometimes a little down, sometimes a little flat. Mississippi showed a little bit of growth, um, but basically the the reading results were pretty disappointing. And I wonder what your reaction was when you first saw those results. Um, one, I was not surprised. Uh, two, it's important to share how I look at the results. Uh, while a lot of attention was given to uh, under um, those who were basic and proficient and those who did not were below level, uh, I started looking at the advanced scores. Um, that hasn't changed. So we roughly have 56 million students. On average, we have about 9% who read at an advanced level. So that's about 5 million students. We have 51 million students who are not reading at an advanced level. And I think we've been skewed away from even thinking about it. Uh, and it has become taboo in the United States to talk about moving kids toward advanced levels, particularly as it intersects with uh, learning uh, second language learners or uh, economics or race. Uh, and there's a distrust, but that distrust in some ways is what's imprisoning our instruction by smallness. This goes back to this improvisation. And so if I'm constantly oriented to basic and proficient, uh, that becomes the marker. Uh, and if I continue to improvise, improvise, improvise with a limited research base, uh, applied research base across different groups. Um, I'm not moving uh, in the right direction. So I was not surprised. Uh, again, it goes back to there's a great deal of theorizing, uh, different types of literacies. Uh, we have legitimized underperformance and to the point where we say, well, we shouldn't really assess students. 
or we have conceptualized different practices based on our own identities. And a lot of this uh, is leaving our most struggling readers uh, underserved, but it also indicates that we're not doing well by those students who enter our schools who are prepared uh, to move toward an advanced level. Bitterly disappointed, not surprised, and the past two decades have led to this authorization where we're trying to untangle what our next step is in this nation. So I want to just tell you two stories that that I think bolster exactly what you've said. And one is um, the superintendent in, in the district where my kids went to school, he actually said, uh, we're going to cut out science and social studies because uh, we have to focus on the kids learning to read. And like, you know, anybody who knows anything about reading knows that you've just hampered them, right? And and you've just hogtied them or, you know, some, some other kind of <laughs> terrible thing because you, you've, you've denied them the vocabulary, the richness, the, I think you used the word gorgeous vocabulary, gorgeous vocabulary. You wouldn't necessarily get that from science, but certainly social studies should. And um, uh, the other story was um, I was sitting in a high school, uh, I was a parent representative to a high school uh, this was the high school that my kid was going to go to. And this was, you know, a very long time ago. But um, they had just done an assessment of the students coming in, the incoming ninth graders. And one-third read at fifth grade or below, you know, what on whatever assessment it was. They, they read at fifth grade or below. And one of the teachers said, oh, I wish I had known that I would have ordered easier textbooks. And I think both of those stories kind of indicate that, yeah, when when kids don't know how to read, the the reaction from educators has been, well, we have to uh, dumb it down, right? And that it is it doesn't actually respect the intellect of kids who lack a skill, like. Tangie and I are constant. Tangie's favorite uh, ex- uh, explanation of this is: if a kid doesn't know what orange is, you teach them what an orange is. You don't say, "Oh my gosh, he's so stupid!" Right. Doesn't know teach what them orange. orange. Just go ahead and teach him orange. And we're constantly coming up with examples of this, right? So, um, and and it seems to me that your work speaks so profoundly to this exact problem. So. Um, uh, so what pe- what do people what are people getting wrong about reading instruction? I mean, I think we've kind of laid out some of it, but like, how does that play itself out in ways that you've seen? One of the things that I, I witness is cir- circumscribing reading to particular types of, of camps or particular types of disciplines. Now, as I think about what you just shared. I often tell educators that the same 26 letters in the alphabet that you see in easier text are the same 26 letters of the alphabet that you see in complex text. The same sound similar relationship that you see in a piece of literature is the same sound similar relationship that you'll see in a science text. Uh, The same phonemic awareness that you see in easier text is the same phonemic awareness that allows you to 
read uh, more uh, complex uh, uh, text. And so many students, to no fault of their own, experience environments where educators turn down the volume of reading instruction. And so they're reading less, uh, they're being, or they're experiencing uh, less content, and then we are concerned about these long-term trajectories. So, for example, and, and uh, I just want to let you know that uh, I, I often talk about gorgeous words in literature, but when you hear a third grader talk about the amygdala as a seat of fear, uh, that's gorgeous. When they talk about the pituitary gland, and they use words uh, uh, related to genetic uh, engineering. That's gorgeous language to hear drip from the words of third graders. Uh, when they talk about their own um, philosophical stance as a third grader or fourth grader, like, my goodness. But they often don't have those uh, opportunities or when they connect their lives to dark matter in a piece of poetry. I mean, those are things that occur in science, but we have those disconnects. And one of the things that I see, um, I, I've witnessed, we make assumptions about kids' uh, identities. And so if someone comes in and reading achievement is the primary focus of a school building, that does not give us permission to squeeze out the other identities that they bring uh, to that uh, environment, whether it's a gender identity or cultural identity or national identity. We can't suppress students' identities and get them excited and engaged uh, for reading. And so it's a couple of things. We either focus on um, advancing literacy in ways that we think are powerful and we fail to teach the requisite skills and strategies, or we pay attention to the requisite skills and strategies in hope that we'll turn that corner later on. It's so much better when we have our instruction sit at the intersection of helping kids become better readers and helping kids become uh, smarter about something. They deserve all of that. That's right. They do. So, Tangia, I'm trying not to, like, <laughs> monopolize. Yeah, <laughs> of course, you know, and, and I'm, I'm glad that Dr. Tatum talked about the assumptions we make about kids' identities. And you know there's such a push right now on cultural relevance and cultural sustaining and anti-racism. Can you talk about how that is moving through literature in ways that are advancing student knowledge and skill, but maybe there are some ways in which it is also becoming a constraint. I think it plays out unevenly. And uh, so for the educators who ask the questions, if I'm uh, using a culturally responsive or culturally relevant approach, what else should I be paying attention to? And how does this play out across different types of disciplines? And so there's a tendency for some 
um, to think about culturally responsive approaches from a sociological uh, lens. Um, and this could ultimately lead to, and it shouldn't do this, but it can ultimately lead to uh, eat some type of long-term erasure across different types of disciplines. So if I am unable to um, fully integrate whatever this culturally responsive approach is across a wide range of disciplines, it may lock students out of certain disciplines. I want to give a concrete example. It's working with the middle school and they wanted to teach a lesson on rocks. And there was an administrator says, why do we want to teach our kids about rocks? It's predominantly African-American and um, Latino uh, children uh, in the building. And I said, rocks belongs to black folks too. Right. Because there's an emerging body of uh, geophysicist. And I read this wonderful article. I don't know if it's a wonderful article. I read this article recently about a black woman excavating rocks in the dirt and someone called the police on her. Said, we have a crazy black woman in the dirt. I mean, you can Google this uh, particular image because the expectation was you don't have this woman of color sitting, studying rocks. But rocks have so much to do with our long-term health and viability. But if we don't know that or connect geophysicists from a cultural responsive pedagogy, we've connected to a cultural identity, but we could effectively be challenged to deal with the two percenters. And what I mean by two percenters, when I look long-term, uh, African-Americans represent about 2% of the professions, whether it's medicine or education. If we're not thinking about that long-term movement from a perspective that teaches reading as a tool of protection across all disciplines, then we miss the mark. The, the idea that rocks would be closed to any, anyone, rocks are available to everyone. <laughs> I mean, you can live in a city, you can live in a count, you know, country or a suburb, and they all have rocks underneath them. That's yeah. But if you're if you're uh, if your understanding of who gets rocks as a as a study, right, right. So I understand that rocks are everywhere, but rocks as a study, geologists as, are not as ge right. are not exactly. So right. rocks are, but the intellectual work of studying rocks is not open to everybody. Um, you just mentioned, I heard you talk yesterday about this idea of you know literacy as a tool or tools of protection. How does that work when we are seeing such stagnant numbers with students being able to read? How do we understand this idea of tools for tools of protection when it comes to helping students, helping actually helping teachers help students to learn how to read? Well, I think about reading from a long-term perspective and shaping trajectories. Uh, but I also think about it from a short-term perspective. Uh, uh, perspective. Uh, so those who read generally get greater access to you know, different courses or different subject matters. It shouldn't be that way, but that's the reality for that. But from a long-term uh, uh, perspective, any literate community should be able to protect their rights to be 
protect their posterity, et cetera. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, another uh, example that captures this. Uh, years ago, I was given a presentation and I said um, water was culturally relevant. I didn't think there's going to be any pushback. This was pre-Flint, Flint, Michigan. And then when you think about protecting your water in Flint, Michigan, it was someone from the outside from D.C. that had to serve the black community in Flint, Michigan. Well, if I'm not thinking about water, I'm not reading about rocks, I am now subjugated to the power and the authority of others. So one of the questions I often uh, ask, and I think this goes to, to, to the point, it, it says, um, out of all of the text in the world, why do I want to put this text in front of these students at this time? But the other question that's equally important is, how do I break down the barriers at the word level, at the sentence level, at the paragraph level, at the text level, so students can read those texts independently. Historically and present day, when you have advanced literacy skills, you can engage in serious study across any topic. And so am I preparing these students to engage in serious study and look at the intersections across the disciplines? If I'm not doing that, I'm sort of passing that responsibility on to the next educator. And I'm hoping that students hold out hope and confidence in reading and writing as tools of protection. Because we have so many students losing confidence in reading and writing instruction. Some lose confidence because they can't decode. Some lose confidence because they're not becoming smarter about something. Some lose confidence because they don't see the relevance in what's actually uh, taking uh, place. And it's all about that restoration of confidence across those different uh, entities of reading. So asking ourselves often, what do we need to become smarter about as educators, and researchers to move our nation of children to advance readers, writers, and ultimately uh, intellects who can serve our society well. I have become convinced, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say my view here because, um, and and have you shoot me down? But I have become convinced that particular programs, particular um, uh, practices, particular policies, they can all be helpful or harmful depending on how you use them. But what it has what when I go to high performing and rapidly improving schools and districts, what I see is not necessarily perfect techniques or perfect materials or perfect anything. But what I see is, educators who believe that every kid can learn and that it's their job, their responsibility to figure out how to teach them. And that doesn't mean they think it's always easy because, you know, kids come in with a whole variety of 
uh, abilities and and backgrounds and all kinds of things. Um, a lot going on at home sometimes, but it's their job to figure out how kids learn. And and then once you've got that belief in place, then they're continually changing what they do in order to meet the needs of particular kids. And and so I've I've gotten very impatient with a desire to come up with really good programs or really good materials. As important as I mean, and I don't mean to um, downplay the importance of them, because I don't know why we ask teachers to teach stuff with, you know, crummy materials, which we do all the time. But um, am I on the right track here? Is that belief central to whether or not kids retain their ability, their their ability to be confident, their you know to uh, to restore their confidence, the confidence of a three-year-old who, you know, can do anything. You want that throughout their lives, and yet we see that kids' confidence does diminish as they go through school. I'm kind of rambling. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm following you, though. And I, I, I um, as you were speaking, I was uh, thinking... Ask myself what what is the role of programs and what are the roles of 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 text. Um, unfortunately, uh, we all enter our teaching spaces with um, a different text arsenal. Uh, it could be a function of what we read, what we were exposed to. Uh, our own relationship to reading uh, and writing. And so programs can play, um, they can be very uh, central in, in terms of helping uh, educators who are building their own repertoire of text over a period of time to get a sense of what's working really well, uh, what's not as they continue to build that that arsenal. And so when I... Uh, work to prepare a reading specialist. One of the most difficult things uh, I found was uh, being able to select, uh, select certain types of text. And so I would ask the question out of all of the texts in the world, why this text at this particular time? And as a result of that, there could be a tendency to revert back to default text. Uh, I teach the text that I was taught, or it could be canonical, or it could be a text within your discipline. So you may not even think beyond your particular uh, area of discipline. Uh, as a biologist, biology teacher, I've read biology text most of my life. I could have, but I, I may not know, you know, a great poem or a great piece of literature, and therefore I'm not giving myself permission to go outside of my uh, discipline. So if a program helps expand the lens of the types of text and the intertextual connections uh, in a way that allows students to enter these texts uh, through their different identities, uh, I'm not trying to bastardize a particular identity, but that's a default text. Um, so in my own experience as a researcher, I often ask, well, what types of texts 
should we put in front of black boys? I, I can't tell you how many times I get that question. And I respond, well, all text belong to all students. But there could be a particular default based on where a kid lives, uh, his economic station in life. And as a result of that, uh, our students can suffer from an underexposure uh, to text. Uh, th and that's problematic. So in some, I, I think programs can play a particular, a powerful, powerful role. But programs, like everyone else, I mean, like everything else, uh, they are in search of themselves uh, because this reading thing is not, you know, stagnant or static. It continues to uh, evolve. And so as we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you're going to have a shift to say, well, how does this capture diversity, equity, and inclusion? And you may even have some put a DEI stamp across different types of text. So all of that is, uh, I think, uh, important to move forward, but much of it is based on uh, limited uh, research. But there is a strong historical precedent. When we look at sophisticated readers and sophisticated writers across all disciplines, you can see, if I go in the archives of African-American men going back 200 years, it's like, wow, they're reading and writing across all texts. So they're talking about theology, economics, politics, the 14th Amendment, uh, agriculture, all in the same text. Well, that was their lived uh, experiences. But now we compartmentalize like, well, politics is over here, philosophy is over here, and religion is over here, but that's not how we um, live. And so we have factory, uh, create this factory model of text, become an expert in this particular, and then we want kids to make those connections. Let's make that stuff intentional. And that would dictate to us that we need to open up the vistas of text to students across ethnicities. But what I, what I noticed when my kids were going through school and so they both are out of college now. And so it, I'm a little old, right? Like I, my, my intimate knowledge of kids going through school is a little old, but they did not read much. They were not required to read much. So when you talk about, well, expanding the text, they read three or four novels a year. Like it just wasn't very much. So you have to, the teachers must have thought deep and hard about those three or four novels when I kept thinking, why aren't they reading like a book a week? I don't, <laughs> you know, what's the problem? This is what they're supposed to be doing is reading. But, but, but we don't ask kids to read very much. I, as I say, maybe I'm old, you know, maybe I'm too old to really know what's going on in schools now, but I don't think we ask kids to read enough. Is that, am I right about that? I, I, I have observed that. Again, um, this goes back to the state of reading question. We really don't know how much students are reading across contexts or 17,000 school districts. We, we just don't know. Um, anecdotally, uh, that has happened. I have observed that. Um, 
and, and that that becomes a, a real tension. Um, but that that goes how we think about reading. If I think about reading as an hour long uh, activity, I began to say, well, how much can I squeeze into this hour? If I think about reading as central to the experience across all disciplines, then you see a greater exposure to text, books, poems, you know, primary text, secondary text, essays, uh, online text. Um, I, I, I would say there is an underexposure to text. Now, maybe 2005 or no, remember 2007, I began to examine what I refer to as textual lineages. I would ask students to identify texts they found meaningful and significant uh, in schools. And these were ninth through 12th graders, and many of them could only identify one to two texts throughout their entire school experience. So it's not just how much they're reading, it's how are those texts being mediated to generate a meaningful textual experience. I mean, these are texts that you think about as central to your development over a period of time. And it's just not there. And there was not a significant difference between those who uh, self-described as struggling readers and those who self-described as advanced readers. And we use GPA as a proxy for that. That's a major uh, issue for us uh, as a nation. Did you find differences in the way students think about textual lineages outside of school? So, you know, are they... Because people, you know, they say kids don't read, kids don't read. And one of my responses is they don't read school sanctioned stuff. Right. And so because we don't think they're reading the school sanctioned material, we don't think they're reading. But I think they're reading. Um, And so do we think that because of our approach to reading inside buildings and inside schools, kids are going through the motions of what we call reading, which is read the passage, answer the questions, do the assignment, but then in their lives outside of school, they're making meaning across different types of texts more authentically. Uh, I I did find there were a number of students who, if they indicated meaningful text in their lives, they would say this, I read this uh, independent of school. but that, that was skewed toward those stronger readers, uh, self-described stronger readers. Now, there is uh, research evidence that uh, some students uh, reject school-sanctioned text. Um, and this is based on a limited number of participants in studies. Most of the studies I'm referring to, they have one to 20 participants, or sometimes it's a case study. So I, I don't want to overgeneralize uh, here. Um, but even in adult conversations, um, you know, if the three of us begin to talk about, you know, texts that we found meaningful and significant, some of us will point towards school and some will not. But here's a challenge with that. And I would say I was one of these students. Uh, some students rely on schooling to shape their lives. Um, so that's where it is. Um, they're not relying on home in many cases. I'm relying on schooling. Um, 
if I'm not relying on schooling, you know, we parent, you know, come from a particular type of home and home libraries and et cetera. I'm concerned about those who rely on schooling, who show up and give us all the hope possibilities. And so I, I say if a student shows up, we have an opportunity to make sure that ex uh, student experience something wonderful. And I don't want to default uh, on that experience. Um, so uh, Tanji, I probably said too much. You just asked me, was there a difference between school sanction and uh, text outside? I could have said yes, but I, I felt the need to just expand uh, no, I think, a bit. No, that's right. I think that's right. I think it's really important to make the distinction because I think there are students, like you said, you know, like my own personal kids, they didn't rely on schooling for their reading rich lives, right? Like they have a home with lots of different books across lots of mediums and art and all that business as well. But I think your point about, you know, students that are relying on schooling for that and, and making sure that we are not hitting that default. And I think too often because the outcomes we're looking for they almost necessitate a kind of instructional practice. So, you know, they, they, we are looking for measures that are, you know, static measures, linear measures. And so to get there, it requires a certain kind of instructional practice, which is not necessarily life-affirming for many kids. Yeah, let me personalize this for a second here. Um, when I first charted my own textual lineage, from schools, uh, many of the texts came from the social sciences. And I was, I was a pretty good reader. So I read Up From Slavery, Autobiography of Malcolm X. I read the protest poetry of the 1960s, Claude McKay, uh, The Declaration of Independence, um, Invictus. I read all of this, but, and, and I experienced those texts in schools. When I charted my, and it, it, it seemed as though I was being prepared to become a sociologist. And incidentally, uh, I minored in sociology in college. When I examined my scientific lineage from middle school and high school, it was blank. Now, I would have read any science that you put in front of me. Um, Someone made a decision to authorize or deauthorize certain text in my life. So if I had a scientific lineage inside of school, it may have lent itself to a very different trajectory. So I put that confidence in those educators who did a wonderful job by any measure. Uh, I can read independently, I can write independently, I can cite text. Uh, I, I remember some of these verbatim. But from a science perspective, this is pre-STEM. Um, why is it that I had limited exposure to scientific text inside of schools? I took biology, I took physics, I took chemistry, uh, I took trigonometry, I took um, uh, college algebra, and pre-calculus. There are wonderful texts across those particular disciplines. Um, why 
uh, didn't I fall in love with those types of texts? Uh, I love. I would have engaged in philosophy or psychology. Well, that happened when I became a freshman in college. But if I didn't make it there, it's it's quite possible. That I'm like, wow, this 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 whole field of philosophy and uh, black psychologists. This was in a this emerging of black psychologists at the time. Now I was like, wow, this stuff was gorgeous. Why did they postpone that? in hope that I would have it during my college courses, it, 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 it was just unfair. And, and so it goes back to, yes, they paid attention to the reading, had all of the skills. I remember the phonics, this instruction. Um, a student who would have read anything that you put in front of me, but someone had some power or authority, whether intentional or unintentional, over my long-term trajectory. I, I do just want to note, because you have been in Chicago for so long, that the there was a real increase in advanced reading on the NAEP in Chicago. And I think if I remember correctly, 7% of fourth graders were considered advanced, which is actually like, it was a doubling. I think it was more than a doubling um, of, of the advanced. And it's kind of starting to be comparable to the national. So um, I don't know if, I don't know if you've had an effect, but somebody had an effect in Chicago um, on advanced reading, and I'll give you credit. You know, I don't. Why not? I'm not. I don't have to. <laughs> I don't have to defend I, it I, in a dissertation. Or that's anything. right. You got no proof points necessary. <laughs> I, I had no effect whatsoever, <laughs> but I did see a significant shift because Chicago just put out their new literacy plan, and the word advanced reading is littered throughout that uh, entire uh, plan. That was one of the first plans that I observed where despite, you know, race, ethnicity, economics, the shift was moved toward uh, advanced uh, literacy development. And I, I think the Office of Literacy is doing a wonderful job uh, to lead that effort. So I'm really excited about the trajectory uh, that's being uh, shaped. Well, so that, that raises this question, like what can policy do? I mean, so we started this conversation around the, the, the statement by the Council of Chief State School Officers that they are urging all state school officers to make reading central. And there are so many layers between a little, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old learning to read and a state co commissioner of education that it's hard to sometimes see how, like, how that state commissioner can possibly have an effect on a five-year-old, right? And yet, you just mentioned that the, the city of Chicago has a literacy plan that has the potential of actually really changing the way kids read in Chicago. Can you just talk a little bit about what you, what you would like, sort of, the big officials, the state commissioners, the city superintendents to think about when they think about reading instruction? 
uh, interrogation is one word that sits at the center of this. If I'm making decisions that will have a profound impact on the lives of the citizens of this state, I want to have a greater degree of confidence that I interrogated where this research is coming from, who it involved, et cetera. Um, one way to interrogate that is how do you think about auditing your own state, your literacy practices uh, from a research lens? And so if we say this is going to work for all kids, if I'm a member of the House of Representative or in charge of this, I'm going to say, well, where is the evidence that we've taken this research? And if I have 45,000 Latinas in my community, where is the evidence that there has been, been an impact on these you know, 45,000 Latinas? Uh, where is the evidence that this has impacted the students who are in special education? That's money well spent. Now, if I was a young man again, and uh, I had to create a job for myself, it would, ha it would be a, a center for reading achievement in the US that has deputies across the different states to build this research infrastructure. So if a state legislator interrogates this and say, are we over-relying on research that hasn't even made a dent in my state, then how do I build that research architecture? How do I think about uh, engaging my, uh, the teaching force uh, in research? And, and that's how you move a state in my uh, estimation. You cannot blindly adopt research practices that have not yielded a reading reality in your state. Are, are, are you thinking about a research practice in particular that you're concerned um, about or? No, well, if, uh, no, no, I'm not a particular research practice. So for example, if we're saying that uh, phonics instruction is the pathway to reading achievement uh, in my state, conduct your own research in that state with a larger percentage of those students. But if I had a study that only involved 3,000 participants um, across limited context, then I'm making these decisions for an entire state based on the limited data set. On the other end of this, if I try to look very hard for a study that looked at culturally responsive practices, what has it yielded? Do we have evidence that I could take this culturally responsive approach, however it's defined, and it's going to upset the apple cart? Are we gonna start moving kids toward advanced levels of reading and writing, or maybe somewhere uh, uh, in the middle? So states are well positioned to answer or ask their questions. Uh, they have research institutes, uh, institutions in their states. They have a wonderful uh, expert teaching force uh, in their uh, states. How do you catalyze that so that we are not um, constantly making decisions that can have 
long-term repercussions on the lives of children uh, in our state. So Mississippi tells a story, but I don't really see the Mississippi research. That was an evaluation of uh, reading outcomes. Um, but even with the evaluation of reading outcomes, significant gains, but the state didn't move kids to advanced levels of reading and writing. You had small upticks that were significantly different from previous performances. And if we are satisfied as a nation around small upticks that we can applaud as successful readers and writers in our nation, then that goes back to what I refer to as the aggression of basic and proficient reading in the nation that will leave some students underserved because we think some students undeserve certain practices. Yeah, I think that is critical when we talk about, because we're asked a lot about promising practices and, and things like that. And then one of the things that Karen and I talk a lot about is let's stop, let's stop calling things best because best is contextual. Right? How do we understand a promising practice? But, and do we ask the next question? What was the promise in the practice? Why was it promising where it was promising? And will it yield what we think are the right kinds of outcomes? And, and for this discussion, that moving kids to advanced levels of reading, right? We, we look a lot for that shiny new toy and that thing to sort of uh, put in front of people. And we gotta ask ourselves some more important questions about why did it yield what it yielded? How can we deeply understand, you know, why something yielded a result? Thinking about an article that just came out a few months ago, talking about how do we better understand effect sizes, right? In, in, in reading research and, you know, thinking about, well, an effect size of whatever the number is, is good, but we don't ask ourselves the context around the effect. So how do we begin to look at what happened in Mississippi and take some a, a broader, deeper lens to it and ask some more questions about how did it happen? What were they doing? Is that applicable widely across the entire state for the long term? I think it's an important way to be thinking about what you're saying, if I think I understand it correctly. Yeah, and we don't have to start from scratch. And so one of the things that we hear often now with the science of reading community is this is based on thousands of studies. Uh, some of those studies were dated, um, but they did yield positive results. So how do I just replicate a study that looks at one of those uh, practices with, you know, 500 uh, or, I mean, 5,000 uh, girls um, in grades uh, one and two in my city, I mean, in my state. Uh, it will be proportional. And, and so you can replicate those studies in your state. And then, you know, Illinois, for example, or Massachusetts, for example, is building a solid research base that should uh, have benefits uh, for those involved. And you may learn what's happening and what's not happening. Um, those are very powerful potentials for research, reading research commissions 
or writing commissions uh, in particular types of uh, states. But you have to define what the end game is. Uh, what do we imagine or how do we imagine these readers uh, in our nation? If I have no you know, view of what this reader is, uh, I can have gains, but I can still be you know, significantly below the means or several standard deviations beyond behind those who are advanced readers. And that can't be good enough. If, if the upticks in reading in Mississippi leave those students several standard deviations behind the best readers, we're saying this is good enough for students in Mississippi, even though there are multiple deviations of one or two deviations behind the best of the best. And that can't be acceptable in our nation. Well, I do worry about sort of relying on Mississippi right this minute, because as you say, it was small game. I mean, it was the only sign of hope in, in, the, two, in, the, in the 2019, you know, uh, NAEP scores. It was the only place that went up, right? But they went up from not a great place um, and they didn't get to a great place, right? So they had some gains. Yippee, it's a little early to say we should all do what Mississippi's doing. I, I'm kind of making a reduction. I'm sort of reducing what you said, I think. You know, let's, let's not say they've got the key. They're not, there may not be the key. Um, there may be multiplicity of keys, and, and, each, and different places may find different ones. On the other hand, it was gains. I, you know, like I, I, I applaud them. I applaud any gain. I, I think gains are important. We should study gains, but we should be careful to not say, oh, now, now we know. Yeah, I agree with that. We never want to diminish. I mean, there's a human story behind this. Right. You know, Very much so. I often say it, it's just not about reading scores. It's how we score with reading. Mm -hmm. uh, and W.E.B. Du Bois said, our children are not scorecards right. of achievement. That's right. And so being reminded of our great uh, sociological ancestor, uh, none of this is just, uh, there's caution when we say our kids are scorecards uh, of achievement. Um, particularly in a nation with 56 million kids, if 51 million are not reading at an advanced level. And uh, there were some teachers doing some great work to, to make that happen. And students you know, gave their efforts to make it happen as well, too. So. Absolutely. One one thing that it's kind of dr driven me a little bit crazy is Alabama actually was showing enormous uh, gain, gains in the first part of the um, century, and that uh, that's one of the few times I've ever seen, said those words. The first part of the century, but you know, the first decade or so, um, they were really showing some very nice gains. But it was masked by the fact that other places were showing gains too. But mm -hmm. Alabama was showing some really nice gains, and they stopped in two thousand eight, and they've dropped, and that's horrifying. And, and and it just makes my stomach churn, you know, to know that you could improve and then go back down. Uh, and so we we have to be careful when we say, oh, you know, there's a little bit of gain in Mississippi. I give them. All props. 
hold on to it. You got to keep moving. You know, like that's, it's just a beginning. Yeah. And that's what we see the bull market and the bear market in, in, in some places and some classrooms. Um, but surprisingly, uh, when we looked at, uh, I worked with two other gentlemen, when we recently com completed a report on the state of literature research of uh, black males K through 12, we were finding very few studies in the South. Um, why, so, why is that? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, Tangie's looking we just know at me they like, oh, are you stupid? We just don't know why there are very few studies, uh, particularly involving black males in the South. Now, I didn't look at any other uh, group, um, but some of these decisions are being made. Uh, and that's why I'm saying we don't know definitively and we have to create a more robust research architecture, starting with what we know, what has happened, and replicating that in ways that does not delay students' literacy development. How do we move forward research in highly ethical ways with integrity as we seek to ride our ship moving forward? That seems like a great way to end, but is there something more that we should talk about, Tanji or Dr. Tatum? Is there a question we didn't ask that we should have asked? I think we got it. I think I am just, I could listen to Dr. Tatum yeah. talk all afternoon. So but I, <laughs> at I, the I, risk of not doing that, I think, <laughs> we, um, <laughs> you know, I, I just am so appreciative of the fact that the ideas are expansive um, and pushing us to, expanding our thinking beyond basic and proficient because I think that's really important. And I confess, I think I have bought into that a little bit. I've been like, just let's get them all to basic. At least they've got that then. Right. Um, uh, so I, I appreciate that push because I think you're exactly right that that's not good enough. Um, and uh, we need to really be, much clearer about that. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Tatum. Can I say one last word here? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's not just about their literacy development. It's about their lives. If that doesn't allow us to remain steadfast, I don't know what will. Perfect ending. That's exactly right. That wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Education Trust. If you are interested in learning more about the work of Dr. Tatum, we have linked to some of it in our show notes. This is the first of a series of conversations we'll be having about reading instruction this spring. It's a hot topic, and I hope at the end of it all, our listeners will have a better understanding of why it's such a hot topic and some of the ways educators can move forward so that all our children not only learn to read, but learn to be engaged citizens who help shape our democracy. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.